0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley. Hello,
2: and welcome to episode 104 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, my former co-host, John Joseph Adams, will be stopping by to tell us what he's been up to so far in 2014. Also, joining us for that conversation will be John's longtime literary agent, Joe Monty. But first up, we've got an interview with acclaimed physicist and futurist Michio Kaku. He often appears on TV shows like Prophets of Science Fiction and Futurescape, and he's the author of best selling books like Hyperspace, Parallel Worlds, and Physics of the Future. His latest book is called The Future of the Mind. So, Michio Kaku, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be on.
2: All right, and so your new book is called The Future of the Mind, and it deals with all these amazing technologies that are in development or will be developed in terms of uh, things we can do with our minds. Uh, But for me, one of the most fascinating things about this book was just learning about how weird our minds were to start with, how weird our minds have been this whole time. Uh, For example, you talk about in the book how a person can be an atheist in one half of their brain and a religious person in the other half.
1: Yeah, isn't that amazing that uh, with MRI scans, we can actually see that the left brain and the right brain actually operate slightly differently. The left brain is the dominant uh, brain, so what you consider yourself is basically your left brain. But your right brain can be separated surgically with epileptics. And by cutting the link between the left brain and the right brain, then the right brain can begin to reveal its personality. And we begin to realize that the right brain is actually quite different from the left brain in terms of intentions, in terms of what it wants to be. And we can actually communicate separately with the left brain and the right brain for these epileptics who have this connection surgically cut. And we realized that you could be perhaps Republican on your left brain and Democrat on your right brain, but of course your arm has only one lever to pull when you're in the voting booth. Hmm. So you can imagine the conflict this person would have trying to vote with the left brain and the right brain competing over who controls the right arm.
2: Mm -hmm. And you say that maybe one reason we evolved this way is because people often make better decisions when they have multiple points of view uh, offering suggestions, and in effect, our brains do that on our behalf.
1: Uh, That's right. Our brain, in some sense, is not like a digital computer, which is what we thought. It's more like a bureaucracy. The leadership of a corporation does not have to know everything that's happening in the bureaucracy. And that's why we have an unconscious mind, as Sigmund Freud correctly pointed out. And that's also why we have emotions. A corporation has to have a, a quick, rapid response to different kinds of emergencies, independent of the leadership. Emotions are good for our survival, they allow us to react instantly to different kinds of emergencies. And that's why we have emotions. Mm.
2: And you mentioned that people, we can see these different parts of the brain come out sometimes with epileptics or if people have brain injuries or or things like that. But you also say in the book that there's this technology now called transcranial electromagnetic scanners, which you can actually turn off parts of people's brains uh, at will.
1: Well, it turns out that this actually has religious implications as well. It turns out that injuries to the left temporal lobe make you hyper-religious. And that is, every time you see somebody fall or a misfortune, you think they're evil spirits, and it was meant to be. And we think that many individuals like Joan of Arc throughout history, many prophets, probably suffered from some kind of injury to the left temporal lobe, which induced this behavior. Now, with magnetism, we can actually induce this behavior without having to hit somebody over the head. It's called the God Helmet. And by putting on the God helmet, you can actually induce the feeling of being in the presence of spirits, uh, of being in the presence of a higher being. And so nuns were put into the God helmet, and they were asked, uh, doesn't this disprove the existence of God? And these nuns said, no, because this simply is a telephone system to God. God wanted us to have a telephone system by which we can communicate with him, and that's why God created our brain with this hookup to God, and so I think this does not disprove the existence of God, but it basically shows that physics physics can create disturbances in the brain to allow us to understand how the brain is wired
2: mm-hmm. and I mean speaking of hooking things up to the brain, uh, that's sort of the latest thing is being able to have people use their minds to control Uh, keyboards or arms, things like that. Uh, I guess even Stephen Hawking is using this now?
1: That's right. My colleague Stephen Hawking uh, has lost control over his fingertips now. He can no longer operate a laptop computer because he has no voice, he has no motion of his fingertips under his control. So the next time you see him on TV, look at his glasses. Look at the right frame of his glasses and you'll see an EEG sensor. Basically, picking up radio emissions from his brain is not very sophisticated, but with it, he's able to mentally control a laptop by which he can painfully begin to type. In Japan, there's even a toy that you can buy. It's basically a headband with two ears on it, two plastic ears, and when you are excited when you meet someone at a party, these ears go straight up, and when you lose interest in that person, then the sensors pick that up and the two ears begin to sag. So in other words, in the future, you'll know exactly who you're impressing at a party by looking at the ears, whether they are straight up or whether they sag.
2: I mean, one thing that really struck me in the book is that you say that, or, you know, it's sort of a, um, it's common wisdom among conspiracy people that if you just put tinfoil, if you wear a tinfoil hat, it'll protect your mind from, uh, you know, being spied on by the CIA or something. And you actually say in this book that a, a telepathy shield would consist of metal foil placed around the brain. So is there any truth to this whole this whole uh, classic tinfoil hat idea?
1: Well, let's talk about the CIA for a moment. The CIA, we now realize, had a project called MKUltra, whereby they literally dumped millions, millions of dollars at universities and different military bases to study ESP, to study hypnosis, to study Drugs like LSD. Out of this multi million dollar project, almost nothing came out. They were not able to control people's minds. They could not read minds at all. However, now we have the sophisticated MRI machines, the magnetic sensors coming in, and they do give a limited ability to peer into your thoughts, but privacy is still protected. You have to have direct access to the person's brain, like in an epileptic uh, operation. Or to put a helmet directly on the skull. Uh,
2: I mean, could, but you could shield your brain somehow using a metal foil? Uh, I mean,
1: that's it? right. It's called the Faraday cage. Uh, Michael Faraday was the great physicist back in the 1800s who showed that if you are in a metal cage and you are struck with a big electric spark like a lightning bolt, the electricity evenly is distributed around the cage so that you are perfectly fine inside. In the same way, if you really are paranoid about this, uh, putting tin foil and grounding it is a way to shield uh, the inside from the outside because any electrical disturbances are distributed around a metal foil.
2: Mm-hmm. So you think in the future, spies and world leaders might have some sort of uh, metal around their brains to keep uh, people from <laughs> spying on them?
1: Well, I saw the movie Salt with Angelina Jolie, And in that movie, they actually capture a Russian operative and put him on an MRI machine to read his mind, to use it as a lie detector. Now, it turns out that when you tell the truth, your brain doesn't do much on an MRI scan. But when you tell a lie, first you have to know the truth, and then you have to create the lie, and then you have to create the cover-up, the consistency of the lie with all the other lies you've been telling all these years. That's a lot of brain power their brain lies up like a Christmas tree. So in the movie, they actually use an MRI scan to see whether or not this Russian was lying or not. Now, I think this is possible, but again, the, there are ways you can foil it because this machine basically looks at tension and nervousness of the brain. And so there are psychopaths who can control a lot of their brain functions and bodily functions so they don't respond as if they're nervous when they
2: tell a lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, but do you think that as MRI technology advances, it will be possible to read people's minds, uh, to, or to say, to, to build a reliable lie detector regardless, that doesn't measure whether the person's nervous or not, but just actually does tell you whether they believe they're telling the truth or not?
1: Well, at the present time, you can get this commercially. There are commercial outfits who say 90% accuracy, that can tell whether or not a person's lying. But I think we're still in our infancy in terms of being able to do this. However, let me tell you what we can do with an MRI machine. At Berkeley, where I interviewed the scientists there, they can convert the electrical activity of the brain into 30,000 dots, each dot representing electrical activity of the brain. Then you put these 30,000 dots into a computer. The computer program then digests this information and spits out A picture of what you are thinking about. This actually can be done using today's technology and in the future we may be able to actually photograph a dream. Now this was once considered straight out of science fiction. Look at the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio but actually the back of the brain is the visual cortex and using this MRI scan you can actually scan the visual cortex and roughly get an approximation of what you're dreaming of.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you say that in the future, maybe instead of watching movies, we'll just experience people's thoughts. So you could, say, record what it's like to win an Olympic gold medal and then download that experience into your brain and experience that sensation.
1: Yeah, this is straight out of the movie The Matrix. Um, Recording a thought and recording emotion was once considered science fiction. But we did it. A scientist just a few months ago recorded the first memory of a mouse, reinserted that memory, and the mouse remembered what it had forgotten. And so now it is actually possible to record a memory. It's been done in the laboratory. Now, the memory is not very complicated. The memory is a mouse sipping through a straw, okay? But the very fact that we could do this at all last year is absolutely amazing. Because it means that in the future, we might be able to push the play button and learn calculus.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things they, they do to the mice is they're able to inject them uh, with drugs somehow and make them forget specific things. And you say it might be possible to do that with people as well. I guess there was some, actually some pretty promising research on that um, along those lines.
1: Uh, yeah, the forgetful pill has been looked at very carefully by the military because, of course, we have all the GIs with traumatic experiences. And it turns out that there are several, several kinds of drugs that are being tested that seem to have this capability of of erasing traumatic memories. And also, however, there is a dark side to this. What happens if someone puts a memory into your brain that is incorrect, that is a false memory? Uh, That was explored in a movie, um, Total Recall, with Arnold Schwarzenegger where Arnold Schwarzenegger thinks he's a good guy, because all his memories are the memories of an honest, law-abiding citizen. But in reality, those memories are fake. In reality, he was a cutthroat criminal, okay? And his memories were simply injected into his mind so he could carry out the crime of the century. And so this leaves open the possibility that one day you can tinker with people's memories.
2: Yeah, I mean, and... It seems like there's so much potential to this idea, say, so to be able to treat soldiers with PTSD and relieve them of these unpleasant memories. But you say that, um, you mentioned in the book that these kind of drugs actually got a thumbs down from the President's Council on Bioethics. Uh, what did you think about that, that decision?
1: Yeah, this is controversial. Uh, what the President's Commission on Ethics said is that bad memories are part of our life. We live with bad memories, traumatic memories. And they make us better people. That was the conclusion they made. But I tend to disagree. Um, what happens if a memory is so traumatic that it debilitates you? You're, you're constantly depressed. You can't get a job. You can't function in society because you're haunted by memories of what happened in wartime, right? That's not learning from the past. That's not making you a better person, okay? We're talking about basically an injury, an injury to the brain in the form. Of a memory that's so traumatic it paralyzes you, so I think the President's Commission went too far.
2: Yeah, I mean, in that section, the the bioethicists you quote really seemed to me to be committing the naturalistic fallacy of just, you know, this is the this is the natural thing, this is the way it's always been, so it must be for the best.
1: Yeah, and we've been with diseases, you know, diseases have been with us for thousands of years, but that doesn't mean we can't cure them. That doesn't mean we have to live with certain kinds of diseases. And I think the, um, this whole philosophy that we should be natural, that we should live with disease or live with traumatic memories, I think is taking things too far. Mm. Uh,
2: there's just one sort of random bit in the book I, w- I wanted to ask you about. You say that uh, the court doctor to the Emperor Claudius used electrically charged torpedo fish, which were applied to the head of a patient suffering from severe headaches. Uh, does that work?
1: Well, you see, it turns out that modern-day technology that is so amazing It has predecessors in the past that were overlooked or people didn't understand what they were doing. Now, of course, back in the days of the Roman Empire, they did not know that the brain was basically electrical. However, by trial and error, they realized that, yes, there are certain properties of, for example, electric fish and different kinds of uh, living organisms which do harness electricity. And they could be used in some sense to treat things like headaches and stuff like that. And so we realized that the ancients were not quite as stupid as we think they were. They were onto something. But of course, there was no way to exploit it. There was no systematic understanding of electricity. That didn't come for 2,000 more years. And so now we can take the fact that the brain is basically electrical and use magnetic and electric probes to be able to stimulate parts of the brain that can then influence different kinds of behaviors. Now we have something called deep brain stimulation. We can actually put a, a hair thin probe into the brain in order to shut off or turn on certain parts of the brain. For example, Parkinson's. Uh, Michael J. Fox suffers from Parkinson's disease where you, buy, where you tremble. And with brain scans, you can actually see there's a tiny part of the brain that's overactive. That's why people shake when they have Parkinson's like in the case of Michael J. Fox. We now know that you can actually insert electrical uh, hair-thin probes into the brain in order to quiet that area of the brain, and these people no longer shake, okay? And also, there's a part of the brain that lights up when you are clinically depressed, not just ordinary depression, but there's a very, very virulent form of depression that seems to be impervious to drugs, psychotherapy, counseling. It turns out that if you again insert this probe into that specific part of the brain, these people who are chronically depressed suddenly <laughs> become normal. I mean, it's amazing. You see videotapes of these people, chronically depressed for decades, suddenly saying that, hey, this has cured me of depression.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, in the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, he imagines a device called the Penfield Mood Organ, which is sort of like a radio, uh, but whatever you tune it to, you can tune it to whatever emotion you want to experience. Do you think this uh, deep brain stimulation has the potential to develop into something like that?
1: Uh, Maybe. It turns out that emotions are pretty much locked into what is called the amygdala, which is located at the very center of the brain. That's a very old part of the brain. It's sometimes called the monkey brain because monkeys also have emotions. And you can stimulate different parts of it, okay? Not only do you have the emotion of fear, okay, which is excited when you dream, for example. When you dream, the amygdala fires. And so that's why many dreams uh, are nightmares and are very fearsome. However, there's another part in the hypothalamus, which is the pleasure center, and so then the question becomes ethical, is it ethical to stimulate the pleasure center and experience pure emotion, the emotion of, of, of joy and ecstasy? It turns out if you take a mouse, you can also put a probe right to the pleasure center, which is called the nucleus accumbens of the mouse, hook that mouse to a telegraph key, so that by pushing the telegraph key, it self-stimulates the pleasure center. These mice will then hit the telegraph key uh, twice a second until they die of starvation. Then you go up the evolutionary scale. You put rabbits, dogs, cats, whatever, and see whether they're smart enough to realize that this is lethal. This is killing them. They have to stop and go out and eat or else they were starved to death. So a porpoise was put on this device. You can locate the pleasure center of the porpoise brain, hook it up to a sensor, and the porpoise, by going forward-backward, forward-backward, can stimulate the sensor. What happened was, these um, these porpoises would stimulate the pleasure center continually until it realized it was dying. It will starve to death. So it stopped, went out and grabbed some fish, and then went back and stimulated itself. Now, this has also been done on humans. Humans, of course, are smart enough to realize that this is death, that they will eventually die unless they go out and eat. So humans are also hooked up to this. But we have to realize that a certain fraction of the human race would prefer to live in a drug-induced euphoria. And so if this were to become widespread, we might find a certain fraction of the human race permanently hooked up to this constantly stimulating themselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is this idea of intelligence boosting, like we see in the the novel Flowers for Algernon. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, how, uh, how plausible is that looking?
1: Well, it turns out that there are several recorded cases of people with brain injury to the left side of the brain, the left temporal side of the brain. One person had a bullet that went through that side of the brain when he was a child. Another person dived into a swimming pool, hit that left side of the brain very hard at the bottom of the swimming pool, and these people came out to be mathematical geniuses. Uh, These are called savants. Uh, They have an incredible ability to do calculations. They can tell you uh, a thousand years in the future if a certain day is going to be Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, Some of them have artistic memories. Uh, They can have a flight over Manhattan And one helicopter flight, they memorized the entire landscape of New York Harbor, and they could paint the entire harbor after this. In fact, when you go to JFK Airport and you land at the International Terminal, look up, and you will see the mural painted by one of these savants after one helicopter ride, one helicopter ride over New York City Harbor. Now, autistic savants also exist. And we think that autism is not a inherently linked to becoming what is called a savant. We think that autism probably damages the left temporal lobe in a way, just like with a bullet, just like with hitting your head on the swimming pool, uh, which induces this kind of savan behavior. Now, we brain scan these individuals, their MRI scans. We see that their brains are not quite normal. They are slightly deformed especially in the case of autistics, we see damage to the brain. But we also see that these people have memories that would put them in the genius level, mathematical abilities that are absolutely astounding. Now, there's a mild form of autism called Asperger's. These people uh, can function in society. We think, in fact, that a large, not a large, but a certain fraction of the people in Silicon Valley are actually uh, Asperger's. We think that Isaac Newton, the greatest scientist who ever lived, was uh, a sufferer from Asperger's. Uh, His personality comes right out of a book of Asperger's. Isaac Newton, by the way, was elected to the British Parliament. And there's only one instance where he actually said something as a member of the Parliament. When he asked for the window to be closed because it was too drafty. That is the only known time that Isaac Newton spoke (laughs) in the British Parliament. Anyway, Asperger's can be studied, but we are not yet at the ability to brain scan these people and duplicate this. Uh, we simply don't know. There are several theories I mentioned in my book as to why damage to the left temporal lobe leads to this kind of behavior. But at the present time, it's still a mystery.
2: Uh, uh-huh. I mean, can you explain why if, uh, if, these, if these abilities are sort of within the capacity of typical brains and they can be brought out by something as simple as a brain injury? why that trait didn't, um, by natural selection, become more common in the population?
1: Uh, Right. There must be some reason why this ability, which is inherent in all of us, by the way, is not manifest. And we think the reason is is clear. Uh, Some of these people that scientists have examined in the past that have these fantastic powers are also deficient in their personality. Some of them have a very low IQ. Uh, some of them could barely tie their shoelace. And they cannot function in society. They're they're haunted by all these memories continually coming at them. Uh, one woman who has this fantastic photographic memory, there's this like split vision. One vision is what she sees in front of her, and the other vision is the videotape of what happened 35 years ago on a Monday, uh, constantly rolling in front of her. and And so it's not functional. So I think what evolution has done is made us, Forget. In other words, the brain probably records everything. It's a runaway tape recorder. But there's a certain algorithm of forgetfulness. In these individuals, apparently that algorithm of forgetfulness is turned off, and they simply do not erase extraneous memories. These people have forgotten how to forget.
2: (laughs) And I mean, you really make the point in the book that we think of people with superintelligence as just ruling the world. But that actually, people with very, you know, that the world is sort of ruled sadly by people with kind of average to low intelligence, and that very high intelligence, people with very high intelligence often go into science or uh, journalism, art, uh, academia, uh, which are not the most uh, lucrative uh, professions or you know, power amassing professions.
1: In, in so many comic books and movies, we have the super genius becoming the villain like Lex Luthor or uh, all the movies where you see super brains take over the world. But actually, we actually do have super brains. They actually do exist. Some of them are my friends. They're Hmm. Nobel Prize winners in theoretical physics. And their incomes are very low, Uh, a fraction of what Zuckerberg makes, a founder of Facebook. And so having a super brain does not make you suddenly become a dictator of the world, okay? So we don't have to fear the scenarios of science fiction where the Lex Luthers of the world take over, because people with exceptional ability, they don't become politicians, they don't become multimillionaires, and some of them did become professors like me, making a measly uh, income. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so in addition to boosting human intelligence in the book, you also talk about boosting animal intelligence, like, uh, like the recent movie Rise of the Planet of the Apes, where... Uh and Alzheimer's treatment ends up creating the super brilliant um, ape.
1: Yeah, believe it or not, scientists are seriously looking at the planet of the apes type scenario. First of all, we are 98.5, genetically equivalent to a chimpanzee. Believe it or not, only a handful of genes separates us from the chimpanzee, yet, we live twice as long as a chimpanzee. We have a vocabulary many, many times that of a chimpanzee. And we have the ability to see the future, to run simulations of the future. Chimpanzees have no concept of tomorrow. Tomorrow for them doesn't really exist as a definite kind of thing. So a handful of genes made the difference. Now, the question is how many of these genes are there? There are perhaps, I don't know, maybe 100 of them. And is it possible to manipulate them with uh, gene therapy? And the answer is possibly yes. My point of view is if you were to. Take a chimpanzee and slowly mutate it so it has bigger cranial capacity, better articulation of the voice box so it can say things, better manipulation of the index fingers so it can pick up tools. What you wind up with is something that looks like a human. And so why bother, right? Because the manipulation of the genes of an ape, yes, it's definitely possible. We know what these genes are now. We've located them. We've cataloged them. I mentioned them in my book, in fact. So it may be possible to do something like Planet of the Eggs, but what you will wind up with is something that looks like a human.
2: Hmm. I mean, when you're talking about this idea of maybe making animals more intelligent, you say that, uh, that not surprisingly, this area of bioethics is so new that it is totally unexplored. And... It seems to me that science fiction has been presenting this idea of of uplifting animals, you know, going back to the island of Dr. Moreau uh, and, and earlier. And do you think that bioethicists should be reading more science fiction so that they're grappling with the ethical implications of these ideas before they happen rather than once they're upon us?
1: Oh, I think so, definitely, because I think science fiction is way past bioethicists who are simply uh, responding to what's happening in the laboratory today not responding to what will happen in the laboratory uh, a few decades from now. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it's a very sort of contentious issue in, in science fiction and futurism. Will it be possible for people to uh, upload their minds to computers or you know, transfer their brains to robots, things like that? Uh, where do you come down in that debate?
1: Okay, well, President Barack Obama uh, initiated a bombshell last January in the State of the Union address, when he said that hundreds of millions of dollars will be allocated to what is called the Brain Project. The European Union has already allocated $1 billion toward the Brain Project. This is the next big thing in science. If I have this connectome project, this Brain Project, which delineates all the pathways of the brain, then we could, on a CD-ROM, create Brain 2.0. That is a Xerox copy of the brain with all the memories, all the personalities intact. In which case, if you die, your wetware dies. But the software that codes all the memories and personality quirks survives after you die. So in some sense, you become immortal. And if you become immortal, you also have mind outside body. And this is a theme explored in many science fiction novels, even in Star Trek where Captain Kirk encounters beings that are pure consciousness. They exist in globes, glowing globes of light, but they are consciousness without a body. And then, of course, these conscious beings want to take over the body of Spock, and that's the plot line of that episode. But is that possible? And the answer is yes. If the Connectome and Brain Project come to fruition after throwing a billion dollars at it, We may have a backup copy of the brain that survives even after you die. And then in the book, I mentioned perhaps one of the greatest science fiction short stories written by Isaac Asimov. His favorite science fiction story was way in the future when pure consciousness zips across the universe. And this is a possibility. If I have a CD-ROM with all the neural connections on a disk, I can put that on a laser beam. And I can shoot that in outer space at the speed of light. And then I can explore the universe at the speed of light. Forget the booster rockets. Forget asteroid collisions. Forget weightlessness. (laughs) Forget radiation dangers. All of that is bunk. When I put intelligence on a laser beam and shoot the laser beam to the stars, and then at the other end there's a relay station, which absorbs the laser beam, and puts all this memory into a robot. And so you can then begin to feel and live on another star system. So this idea was inspired by Isaac Asimov and other science fiction writers, but now we think it could be possible. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, um, Neil, the author Neil Gaiman recently wrote that he had visited China, and that they had told him there that they thought that the the Chinese scientists were very good at uh, iterating on existing technologies, but weren't as good at uh, coming up with completely new ideas on their own. And they had looked at American scientists and saw that they read a lot of science fiction and they were trying to encourage their young, their students to read more science fiction to develop more of that kind of creative uh, outlook. I was just wondering, uh, what your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I have definite thoughts on this. In Asia, we have the expression, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. That is the Asian philosophy of life. You stick out, you're going to get cream. However, in the West, we have the exact opposite expression, and that is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. (laughs) And that, in a nutshell, typifies one of the major defects of the Asian educational system. If you are a budding Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, you are hammered down. And when I see the top physicists of China, there's a program called Cuspia, which selects the top, top, top university students in physics and sends them to the United States to learn physics. I know this because I'm on the Cuspia committee. One of my students, in fact, was a Cuspia student. And I can see these Chinese physicists close up. And I realize that they're very good at taking orders. They tell them to do something. They're not going to bad mouth you. They're not going to snicker. They're not going to say, ho, 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 why do I have to do that? No, they do it, and they do it very well. But when you ask them to come up with a new idea, that's where they get paralyzed. And of course, that's what Silicon Valley is all about. We have tons of squeaky wheels in Silicon Valley all asking for the grief, all asking for startup funds to make their dreams come true. And so I think that the Asian system has to learn this, and science fiction has a definite role to play. Some of the greatest scientists of all time were inspired by science fiction. Take a look at Edwin Hubble, the greatest astronomer of the 20th century, who discovered the expanding universe. When he was a kid, his father wanted him to be a country lawyer. So he learned law, went to Oxford, and was destined to become a country lawyer. But he remembered reading Jules Verne as a child, and he was fascinated by the stars. So he gave up his law career, went to Chicago, got a PhD in astronomy, and went on to discover the expanding universe and eventually what is called the Big Bang Theory. And so I think science fiction had a very definite role to play in, in his upbringing. Also, Carl Sagan, the noted astronomer, when he was young, he wrote that he used to read uh, John Carter of Mars, and he dreamt about chasing Dejah Thoris on the sands mm-hmm. of Mars, just like what John Carter did in that series. And he became an astronomer and was fascinated by Mars as a consequence. So yeah, I think science fiction definitely expands your imagination and allows you to dream about worlds that don't exist, but could exist in the future. Mm-hmm.
2: See, then We had an, a, a listener, uh, Zach Chapman, wanted me to ask you. He says, a few years ago, Michio Kaku was on a show, The Science of Games. Does he play any video games? If so, which ones are his favorites?
1: Uh, Well, I don't have enough time to play video games now, but I used to play a lot of video games. And the ones that I like the best are the ones that really challenge you and play with space and time. For example, we think space and time is flat. We had this mental picture of rocket ships shooting things at other rocket ships. That is a very common sense uh, point of view that even animals understand. But we physicists work in curved space. We work in space with holes in it called wormholes. We work in spaces where things can disappear, reappear. If you go off the right-hand side of the video screen, you wind up on the left-hand side of the video screen. So space is curved. And so these are the games that I think are the most challenging, because they force you to question your common-sense notion of what is space and what is time. Hmm. Uh,
2: another listener, Joe Monti, asks, says, uh, ask about the dark matter research going on in a lab under a mountain in Italy. Uh, Do you know what he's talking about?
1: Uh, Yes, Um, we think that most of the matter in the universe is actually dark, dark matter. So all the high school textbooks are actually wrong. All the high school textbooks say that the world is mainly made out of atoms. End of story, that's what the world is made of, atoms. We now know that's wrong. Only 4% of the universe is made out of atoms. 23% actually is made out of dark matter, an invisible matter. That surrounds the Milky Way galaxy. And 73% of the universe is dark energy, which is blowing the universe apart. It's the energy of the Big Bang itself. People ask the question, what's propelling the galaxies apart? And it's dark energy. And we are clueless as to understanding what is dark matter and dark energy. However, in Rome, in different um, uh, laboratories around the world, We have gigantic detectors hoping to pick up the collision of a proton with dark matter. It should create a tiny spark that should be visible and that's why many laboratories around the world are looking for that spark indicating that matter has collided with dark matter. So if anyone in your audience understands what dark matter is, have them call me first.
2: (laughs) All right, yeah, you can, uh, you can contact us at uh, GeeksGalaxy at gmail.com and, and let us know uh, what dark matter really is. Um, I guess we're, unfortunately, we're almost all out of time here. Do you want to just tell us uh, what other projects? Do you have any uh, new books or TV shows or anything that uh, you'd like people to know about?
1: Uh, well, again, the book is called The Future of the Mind, which is coming out very soon, in the end of February. I'm on a 12-city book tour, in fact. And uh, I just finished a series for the science channel called Futurescape, a six-part series uh, with the actor James Wood talking about what what the future is going to look like, the future of robots, the future of brain science and things like that. What I do professionally, of course, is try to complete Einstein's dream of a theory of everything. What I'm looking for professionally is an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that will summarize all physical phenomena into a single theory, and that is the theory of everything.
2: All right, great. So uh, Michio Kaku, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
2: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Michio Kaku for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy co-host John Joseph Adams will be stopping by to let us know what he's been up to so far in 2014. So, John, welcome back. Thanks. And also joining us today will be John's longtime literary agent, Joe Monty. He's also now editing the new Saga Fantasy and Science Fiction imprint at Simon & Schuster. So, Joe, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: All right. And so, Joe, first of all, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us uh, how did you get into publishing?
0: Oh, I started as a bookseller and I was a bookseller for seven years and then I uh, became a buyer uh, for Barnes & Noble. Um, I was a buyer for children's fiction for 11 years and in the right place at the right time. I started in 96, uh, uh, right through 2006. And that's when everything changed. Everything started to change in 97, 98. Um, and so I was there for the creation of, uh, chapter books and the explosion of YA and middle grade with Harry Potter. Um, and I've always loved fantasy and science fiction. And so when Harry Potter broke things out, um, I got to utilize my knowledge and love of the, of the field and incorporate it into children's and, uh, then I left Barnes & Noble and went into publishing and I worked in sales. And then I went to the editorial. Um, and then from editorial, I went to be the literary agent for a few years. And uh, now I'm back running my own fantasy and science fiction, horror imprint, Simon & Schuster.
2: Yeah, and we definitely want to talk more about your imprint. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think probably a lot of people don't really, you know, if they don't follow publishing that closely, they just have a vague idea of what a li- literary agent does. So could you just explain for people just what does a literary agent basically do?
0: We help uh, get your project to the right place. I mean, uh, on one hand, you're a gatekeeper, right? You're going through slash, you're getting through submissions that um, prospective authors are sending to you, and you have your criteria of what you're looking for vaguely. And uh, you find a couple of projects that you love, and then you start championing them. And for me, personally, I would always work with the author to try to make their work the best. Uh, possible iteration of what they were trying to, to get out. Um, so we go through a couple edits, get it shaped up, um, you know, a, a, a test that is never done and then get it ready for submission and then send it out based on what I know of the field and what certain editors like or are looking for right now and a combination of that, uh, send it out to select editors to, uh, see if they're be interested in being the publisher of this project and, and then there's the negotiations, of uh, the terms of the deal, and um, the other aspect that's really important is thinking about the long-term view of someone's career, like what makes sense now, and then two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. Um, and always was trying to plan ahead, uh, even if that may change as you're going along.
2: I mean, John, why don't you tell us uh, how you ended up with Joe as your agent?
3: Uh, well, I actually met Joe in New York. Uh, there was a monthly lunch series that I used to go to that had some editors and agent, uh, editors and authors and, and a few agents. Um, and uh, Joe just was he was he was part of the group that would come occasionally. And, um, you know, he was a book buyer at the time. And so I got to know him through that. And then, um, you know, a couple of years later, uh, my other, my other literary agent, um, my first literary agent decided to retire. You know, so um so I was looking for a new agent and uh so Joe just emailed me and he's like, Hey, you know, do you you know, do you wanna talk? And uh and I was like, I wasn't sure because I knew that his background was in, you know, children's fiction. He was the children's book buyer and I, you know, I knew that incorporated YA as well. But I um, mean of course I knew Joe knew science fiction and fantasy very well, but I wasn't sure that um you know, that he knew adult Science fiction and fantasy publishing well enough to, to, to do that, or if he was going to even be handling that typically. But then, so, you know, we met and, uh, we just had a really great conversation and we saw eye to eye, like on everything. And he was like, Oh, no, you know, I'm totally, you know, going to be repping a lot of adults. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we just really seemed like a good fit. I already knew that I liked him. I already knew that I'd be able to work with him well just because, you know, having spent so much time chatting with him and stuff. So, um, you know, that's how we ended up as, he ended up as, as my agent.
0: Yeah, um, I think the the thing that really worked for the two of us and why I was I wanted to work with you because um, we both think the same way of, of uh, I should think of a better word than exploiting the zeitgeist, but uh, <laughs> we we like to look at like okay, what's trending? Um, and being a buyer, I, I still think like a buyer even now as an editor. Um, you know, okay, what what's looking what's working in the marketplace and what's sub trending? You know, and what do you think is going to work in a year or two from now and when the book actually comes out? And, um, all of that kind of goes into the disc golf and, and in your head. And then like, but John and I both thought the same way. And over that breakfast, uh, was a breakfast or lunch. No, I can't remember actually. I remember. I think it was lunch. Did. It was lunch. That's right. At the Skylark uh, diner. At the Skylark and... diner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we both like, you know what you should do? You should do this. Like, that's totally what I want to do. And so, yeah. um, it was good.
3: Yeah, actually, actually, one funny thing about the, that conversation is like, so this was right around the time when the, um, uh, the John Carter of Mars movie was, was sort of just announced and it was forthcoming. And I had had the idea to do this, uh, anthology of, of John Carter stories and, you know, which eventually came out, um, called Under the Moons of Mars. And so at the time, you know, when I had my original literary agent, I had pitched to her that idea and she, and so I, I ran it all by her and she's like, Barsoom? What's that? And, and so uh, so obviously she wasn't really on board with the idea. And I was like, well, it doesn't matter if it, you don't know what it is. By the time the movie comes out, everyone will know what it is, you know. And um, so then when I had the meeting with Joe, he actually had the same idea and he and he pitched it to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, I had that same idea. And so it was like um, that was one of the things where I was like, OK, <laughs> I think we're on the same wavelength here.
2: All right, cool. And so I really want to talk about the, the big news that was just announced this past week. Uh, actually, John, why don't you tell us what the big news is?
3: Uh yeah, so um many of you are probably familiar with the Best American series uh, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um you know, Best American short stories and then they do Best American uh, all kinds of things, Best American mystery, Best American essays, Best American sports writing. They even have Best American infographics, which is kind of strange, but um now I'm going to be the series editor for Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. Uh so that's obviously super exciting um you know, I, I get to have a really big impact on exposing the greater world at large—not just the genre community, but all readers—to science fiction and fantasy, and and show them what it's capable of. You know that you know uh, as I as I said, in my proposal. Um, you know, it's like this is the genre of of like Flowers for Algernon and and The Death Bird and and you know other classics like that. Like that's like the 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 best examples of genre fiction. Like Stan you know, on the same ground as the greatest works of, of any other genres. And I mean, I, I, at least in my opinion, they're actually better. But I mean, you know, they're at least as good as the greatest works in other genres. And so, uh, you know, one of my goals with this series is, will be to to try to show people that, um, you know, it's uh, it's really exciting.
2: And it was Joe's idea, right? It was. It was Joe's <laughs> idea. Yeah.
0: Well, I, well, the sales job I took after I left Barnes & Noble was uh, working at Houghton. And I, I'm sorry to do this on, oh, on the air there, Houghton. John. Houghton. 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 This is one of the first week's uh, lessons I got. Houghton. <laughs> Houghton Mifflin. And so, uh, I knew the guys who uh, were in charge of running the Best American series, and actually I was there at the inception, uh, creation of the Best American non-required reading series, which mm-hmm. Dave Edgar's edits. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh you know, even at the time, I thought, like, oh, you should do this. And they're like, no, I don't know. And then um, last year we tried that, and uh, they weren't ready for it. And uh, this year they were. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic, you know. Yeah, uh, I think that the genre of fantasy and science fiction is still marginalized when uh, it absolutely is not. Nine of the ten biggest grossing films last year were fantasy or science fiction movies, Um Fast and Furious Six was the outlier. You, know, <laughs> you, you can consider that a fantasy movie if you like. Um, and the physics
2: you know, were certainly fantasy,
0: right? Exactly. You know, and, and, and other things. Um, but uh, you know, and so it, we've already adopted it, I think, as, as mainstream in many ways. Um, and so I think there's this veneer that uh, that gets held on to that. It. Oh, it, it's not a mainstream thing, and it absolutely is. Um, so I think this is a great thing.
2: Yeah. And I th- i mean, if people if people don't know, this is the, as as I understand it, the most prestigious short story anthology series. I mean, it's the one that when I was a undergraduate that were assigned in all my creative writing classes and things like that. Um, do you think that having this best American science fiction and fantasy will uh, in- increase the stature of, of those genres within colleges?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Um, yeah. I mean, I had the same experience when I was in college. I had at least one of my classes. It was a creative writing class we had uh, one of the, like the, the current year's best American short stories as, is, is one of the texts. And so, um, I think certainly any college that has a science fiction lit course, uh, will, will probably want to consider that. Um, and then of course, I, I think, uh, it's possible that, uh, you know, any, any other sort of literature classes that try to expose the students to more than just the traditional, um, you know, required reading sort of stuff, uh, maybe, maybe we'll be able to incorporate that. Um, but I mean, I, I yeah, like you say, it's the most prestigious, uh, series. Uh, so, I mean it's such a huge honor to actually be part of it but um i, I think definitely just by by being sort of canonized in as part of the series that's just that alone is gonna do a lot and um, I think a lot of people who would uh who would typically not pick up an anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories, they might try it just because of that best american name
0: yeah you know, uh it's a war of attrition, you know um it's like all things that are marginalized eventually uh it starts creeping in and um you know we've got generations if you look loosely at uh, as something as like the gen- the Harry Potter generation, these kids who grew up at the same time as the books, if you will you know um they're they're in their mid twenties now, so they're out of college maybe in grad school,'re starting their careers um you know in ten years they're going to be in positions of power in the next ten to fifteen years and uh This is who we're selling these books to, you know, not just them and uh, the older generations and younger generations to come. You know, it's and I think that's exciting. And the way these books are displayed, they're all together and uh, they're not thought of and separated out. Um, I think all of that combined is going to be something positive.
2: And so where are the stories going to come from, John? Are they going to come primarily from fantasy and science fiction magazines? Or like what will be the, the range of um, authors and magazines that you'll be drawing from?
3: Uh, well, I'm going to try to read everything that I can. Um, obviously, the, the name of the series is Best American. So it's actually um, American is one of the criteria, uh, although that actually also incorporates Canada. So I guess it's kind of technically North American. Um, although no mention of Mexico was in there. So I, if if I find an original story by a, an author who lives in Mexico, I guess I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But, you know, uh, as far as where, um, you know, obviously all the traditional science fiction and fantasy publications, um, you know, um, that includes all of the online publications and ebook only and that kind of thing, as well as the traditional print magazines. Um, I'll also be reading all the original anthologies um, in the field. And, um, and you know, and, and I'll be trying to track down all of the, Genre stories that that crop up in mainstream magazines, like, you know, The New Yorker occasionally publishes some and, and Tin House and, and all these sorts of, uh, you know, sort of top tier literary magazines. A lot of them published uh, a genre story occasionally, um, you know, uh, people like Karen Russell, who we had on the show, you know, uh, they they write uh, genre stories a lot and they end up in, in these mainstream publications. So um, I'm going to be wanting to um, track all those down and, and make sure I consider all those
2: as well. Hmm. And maybe people are getting a sense of why John is uh, a little too busy to be a full-time co-host of the show <laughs> this year. Yeah. Yeah, it's super intimidating,
3: actually, to have that on my plate and, and know, like, I mean, not only reading it all, but, like, actually just tracking it all down and, and like, trying to make sure that I don't miss anything. Um, and, I mean, I'm doing all I can. Like, I set up a a, web, a, a mini site on my website, and so if you go to com slash best-american, uh, you can read more about the series. But um, I'm also um, soliciting recommendations from readers. So if readers find something they really like, they can recommend it to me. I'm just using a Google form for that. Um, so it's just, you know, you just fill out a little form and then submit it and then I get it in, into a database. Um, and uh, also, I'm, I'm I'm just I just have it opened up to writers as well. So if writers publish something elsewhere, you know, like, a you know, not elsewhere, but I mean, not they don't sell it to me, they just publish it in the field somewhere or outside the field. And um if they want to submit it to me they want to make sure i see it they i just have my submission i have a submission portal open for it so anybody can send it to me
2: do you have a sense john of how i mean is this a series is that are they putting out this one book and they're going to see how it does or are they committing to like multiple volumes at this point
3: uh well they committed to doing two volumes um and then um after you know those two come out then they'll reevaluate and decide whether or not to continue it um i mean i hope obviously they'll continue it into the future um, and I mean, it's going to be decided based on mostly on sales figures, I imagine. Um, and, you know, I mean, and how well they're received will also play a part I uh, probably as well. You know, I think we did a really good uh, we have a really good chance of doing well, given that we have Joe Hill as our first guest editor. And, you know, we'll see who else we can line up for for volume two. Um hopefully we can get somebody, uh, you know, uh, with that sort of name recognition again and also who, you know, uh, would would you know, you sort of have this sense that they would pick really interesting things. Like, you know, like that was something I thought about with Joe is that like I I would be really curious to see what he'll pick. But then also he has this huge fan base and, um, you know, and he's also sort of from he's more sort of on the horror side and more sort of mainstream thriller side than than maybe um most uh, genre writers. And so um I'm hoping, you know, he'll draw some of those fans over to, to give the, the series a try. And, and, you know, that'll help it help the series do better and, and thus, you know, help it continue into the future.
2: Mm mm-hmm. Um, all right, so then, John, your other big project uh, recently was your "Women Destroy SF" Kickstarter, that raised over fifty thousand uh, dollars. Why don't you just tell people a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, so it all kind of started with um, with some criticism uh, online, or I guess I should put criticism in quotes. But I mean, it was like somebody did posted this review, and it was like it was it was really stupid, and um, you know, very dismissive of women, and basically more or less the review was saying like, "Oh, I'm so sick of these women destroying science fiction with their girl cooties," you know, and and which is obviously a ridiculous attitude to have, especially in this day and age. But I mean, um, so uh, a lot of people online had seen that and were upset about it, and um, so on Twitter, my wife actually joked, um, you know, after reading that, she's like, "Hey, ladies, I'm I'm ready to destroy science fiction today. Who's with me?" And you know, a bunch of people uh chimed in and they were all excited about it and, and they liked the idea. And so I said, What if we did a special issue of Lightspeed called Women Destroy Science Fiction? And we just embrace that idea and just like turn it all over entirely to the women. Um, you know, women of LightSpeed, I already have a lot of staff that are that are women and um, you know, we'll get a guest editor and uh and so we decided to do that. And so um we just announced it and you know, we just threw together a quick announcement and, and we just had an email address on the website that said I want to destroy SF at lightspeedmagazine.com, like in instructions, if you want more information, you should email that. And so we we announced that with basically no information, just the idea that we're going to do this special issue. And within like a day, we were just like flooded, we were inundated with with emails, like 200 people just like clamoring to help or to be involved in some way. And so we realized like, you know, this is like a, you know, there's a real hunger for this thing. And so we thought, well, um, what can we do to make sure that we incorporate as many of these voices as possible that, that want to participate? And so, um, we decided to try to make the issue a double issue instead of just doing a regular issue of Lightspeed. We, we try to make it a double issue. And so to do that, we decided to launch the Kickstarter. Um, and you know, so, uh, we calculate, we crunched some numbers and we figured, okay, well, if we raise $5,000, we should be able to make it into a double issue, uh, easily enough. And, um, and that'll cover all of our costs and, and allow us to, you know, pay the contributors well and everything like that. And so we did that, and uh, and then you know it just really took off. I mean, you know, sort of. Uh, I guess it's we shouldn't be too surprised given how how excited people were about it when we first announced it. But um, once we launched the Kickstarter, you know, we were only asking for five thousand, and like you say, we ended up with over over fifty three thousand.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what are you gonna do with fifty? Like, what are you gonna do with all that money? I mean, <laughs> where's all that money? Where's that fifty thousand dollars going? You're not gonna add an addition to your house or anything, right? <laughs>
3: Uh, right. Well, no, uh, yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, uh, the, the funds you raise on a Kickstarter actually, uh, probably disappear a lot faster than you might think, uh, especially on a big project like this. I mean, uh, a lot of it's going to go toward the, the Women Destroy science fiction issue, obviously, um, which ended up costing a lot more than we initially thought just because it sort of kept growing as we went along. Um, but also we had a couple of big stretch goals. Um, so once we hit 25 K, we d- announced that we were going to do Women Destroy horror. Um, as a special issue of Nightmare, um, and that'll be guest edited by Ellen Datlow. And then we, when we hit 35K, we announced we do Women Destroy Fantasy. Um, and then that one will be a special issue of Fantasy Magazine, uh, guest edited by Cat Rambo. Um, but so the, both of those will come out in October. Um, and then the Women Destroy Science Fiction one, uh, the original one, that'll come out in June as our anniversary issue. So, um, but so, I mean, that's where most of the money is going, um, and as well as, uh, just otherwise going back into the magazine. And I mean, the whole idea was to make the magazine better, um, with, with any of the additional proceeds. Although I have to say, as, as nice as the 53,000, uh, number was, the, the number I think I'm most excited about is 300, which is the number of new subscribers we got, um, out of the Kickstarter. You know, and look, and a good portion of those were one-year subscriptions. So I'm just really hoping to to make fans out of all of those people, and and hopefully to make fans out of the um, you know, out of the you know seventeen seventeen hundred whatever uh, people who who bought just the individual issue of of the magazine. Um, yeah, you know, we had we ended up with twenty eight hundred uh, backers uh, total. So that's all really exciting. Just the idea that
2: we may have been exposing the magazine to all those new readers. See, mm-hmm. Joe, do you want to jump in here? Were you following this Kickstarter? Oh, or what's your take on yeah. it?
0: Uh, I, I'm so proud of John and Christy and everyone. Uh, you know, it's there's one of these, you know, uh, sayings I know uh, that go around the field that uh, you know, women uh, don't sell as well in fantasy and science fiction, or uh, you know, or it's it's such garbage. <laughs> and uh, yet these things start perpetuate themselves, you know, and um, you know it. And so I love the fact that you're doing this and the fact that uh, it's such a bold statement, you know, uh, the the snarkiness of it, but it still works. And, you know, for for Saga Press, you know, so far as of date, we've uh, acquired nine books and five of them are by women, you know. Um, So, yeah, I I believe in this. And I I don't believe that uh, the idea that uh, uh, cooties exist in some way (laughs) or another. Uh, If anything, you know, I think this is an underserved uh, readership, um, and it's something that uh, smart publishers would be publishing more towards. Um, so, I, I think it's it's smart on so many different levels.
2: I mean, so John, I mean, you do you see this as a bold statement? Did you get any uh, pushback on this? I mean, from like the guy who wrote that original review or anything? Did anyone? Uh, yeah, was there any pushback?
3: Uh, surprisingly, not. And I and I should say actually, uh, you know. I mentioned my wife, Christy Yant, uh, she's the one that sort of made the tweet that started it all. And she's the one that became the guest editor because she's been Lightspeed's assistant editor since the beginning of the magazine, basically. Um, and, uh, I, I just felt like I have, I have to throw that out there. I mentioned the other guest editors and I somehow omitted <laughs> her, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, and Christy was actually really worried about that when we first announced it. And, um, you know, cause I, know, I mean, we've seen a lot of these, uh, flame wars online and, uh, and she doesn't like getting involved in any of that stuff with good reason. Um, but, you know, she was very concerned about it. And I was like, I don't know, I, I I'm like a little worried about it, but I wasn't too much. So just because I feel like like Lightspeed has been we basically we've been um, we've had gender parity in the magazine since the beginning. um, And that's partially because we publish half reprints, half originals. So whenever I was sort of a little bit weighted uh, too much towards uh, original stories by men, I would try to help course correct by publishing more reprints by women and in doing that I was hoping to encourage women to submit to the magazine and and um feel like it's a home that they can publish in because I think a lot of a lot of what happens in, in magazines is that women see these predominantly male tables of contents and then they they feel like well I'm not welcome there and so um so you know so there was that but then and and so of course we were a little worried about some blowback there and uh surprisingly enough I mean there was almost none like when we first announced it there was like one dude who said something about it and it was like okay well he's a dude and so it's not really super <laughs> relevant that he's complaining about it but um and there was one woman who um who complained about it a little bit but then she i think she changed her mind after reading more about it because then she wanted to be involved later and so um really those were like the only people that i saw say anything negative about it which is kind of amazing
0: mhm
2: and i guess you're doing some you're some future uh, things along this line along these lines right
3: Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, uh, on the last day of the Kickstarter, we announced what we're going to do in the future. So, uh, next year, we're going to do Queers Destroy Science Fiction. Um, so we're going to do that special issue of Lightspeed. And then, um, we're also going to, we're going to do another Kickstarter next year. And then to, to make it a double issue. Um, and then if that succeeds as well, we'll also have the same stretch goals in place. So, um, you know, if we fund a similar amount, we might end up with, uh, you know, Queers Destroy Horror and Queers Destroy Fantasy as well. So that's what's on tap for next year, and then we have some ideas for what to do in the future beyond that as well. So, you know, um, we're going to keep doing it as long as people keep being idiots about this kind of stuff. You know, um, I'd love it if we didn't have to. Like if 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 everyone suddenly became reasonable about uh, human rights and and in and, and respect for people. You know, like we wouldn't have to do this kind of um this kind of special issue. But uh until that day comes, I guess uh you know, we'll we'll keep trying to think of ways to do it. I mean, honestly, I, I can't imagine that we could do it for more than like a you know, maybe four or five years. Like and, and at that point we'd be really uh struggling to think of like what to do, what would make actual sense to, to do as a theme. But I mean, um you know, we have a couple other ideas, so mm-hmm.
2: well and Joe, I mean, I guess you're interested in diversity as well. I saw that you edited this diverse energies anthology. You want to yeah. talk
0: about that? Yeah. With, uh, Toby Buckell. uh, this was right around the race fail two and the, um, the whitewashing of YA, uh, the, di- uh, fiascos that were happening a few years ago. And,
2: um, want to maybe just explain,
0: uh, what, those yeah, were. I, I'm going to be a little cloudy on exact details, but, uh, um, Hawaii, there was uh, a couple of covers, particularly Justin Larber last year's, uh, Liar, which, um, uh, got a different person. It was about a person of color, perhaps, and, uh, and uh, the cover itself uh, changed and it was a Caucasian person. Another person, uh, had their cover changed and it was set in, uh, a kind of Ursatz China, um, and, uh, They had a Caucasian girl on the cover for the paperback, and these things were happening coming up and started a discussion at the same time that uh, race fail was uh, happening on the internet. Uh, And somebody else was uh, commenting on, uh, I I won't call it out, uh, but one particular reviewer for a magazine uh, had something to talk about the third world fantasy and science fiction and uh it's just a jargon in there it was just a, his, his use of words was just really uh, outdated and beyond that it was kind of belying other things and so instead of getting pissed off and being like poster number 113 on a blog like yeah this stinks or um i decided to do something positive because that largely online um that was lacking and that was frustrating as well that yeah we're all rallying behind each other we aren't doing anything constructive and that's what i like so much about what john christie uh doing uh, as it is something constructive and so i wanted to do something constructive too and so uh i called tobias Bagel, who was a client at the time and uh and a friend like you know we can just do this right now uh on the train home coming in from the city and like we can just do this right now We, we were on the phone we made up a list of people we wanted to invite and uh we got them on board and then we put together this anthology we knew we wanted to sell it to two um uh, which is a small uh publisher which does uh has its own imprint for fantasy and science fiction uh ya for for uh people of color and uh and we sold it to them and um i donated all of uh, the proceeds uh my end to uh the Carl Brandon society and uh and yeah, I, again, it was something positive and it was something I thought, um, that started a dialogue with a lot of people and, uh, with a lot of readers because they weren't used to that kind of thing in YA, especially uh, a short stories. It's, it's kind of rare. Hmm.
2: Uh, and had you, was that the first book you'd ever edited?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually. <laughs> So that was fun too uh, so did you
2: had you like having worked as an as john's agent for so long had you picked up some tips from his mm-hmm. from watching him I, no
0: I, I asked yeah john helped me a lot uh actually like, this what you do is just what you do it's just how, uh, how you do that and i could from john uh, mm-hmm. a lot <laughs> yeah but you know i didn't feel bad about it because it wasn't competition and every, again everything from on my end was going to charity so uh mm-hmm.
2: Did that experience of editing an anthology play any role in you deciding to move over to the editing side with Saga? Uh,
0: No. Uh, This is my dream job. I actually always wanted to do this. And uh, I'm so very happy that I have the opportunity because it's it's very rare, Uh, especially Mm. when you take a look at the kind of career I've had, which is varied. And um, it's not the natural progression of an editor. Uh, So... um, I like to think and hope that the, my varied experiences are going to add a lot of uh, value, um, but uh, it's a rare thing. And so I'm, I'm extremely excited.
2: Mm. I mean, I, I think of Simon & Schuster as being a very uh, sort of large, respectable literary publishing house. Um, do you see Saga in some way sort of parallel to John's doing Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy as sort of bringing this genre element more into the mainstream?
0: Well, um, it's something I, I want to do, uh, is bring more into the mainstream. I think, uh, in the past couple of years, you've seen the success of, uh, imprints like William Morrow and Crown. And I'm sorry, I forget, uh, what imprint, uh, Lev Grossman's books were coming out of and, uh, in Penguin. But, uh, you know, I, and you see these books that are coming, uh, from uh, places that are not fantasy science fiction homes and, uh. Yeah, I think there's, there's a value in there, but I think there's also a statement. And that statement is that, yeah, this can be mainstream. I think, um, eventually what you would, I think, referring to, John, is like, how long can I keep this going? Destroy this, destroy that. Um, is that you end up ghettoizing yourself to some degree. And, um, just to lay down something of a theory, I think in some ways, not all, uh, the fantasy and science fiction industry, uh, has publishing industry, at least has ghettoized itself and like limited what its potential can be.
2: Mm, I mean, how do you, and how do you intend to, I mean, how, I think a lot of
0: packaging, honestly, David, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, you think, well, okay, this is kind of a package that will speak to the fan base. And yeah, yeah, that'll speak to the fan base. And then what about the rest of the potential Mm -hmm. readership, you know, uh, or even thinking that there's a potential readership beyond, um, your car marketing. And, uh, you take a look at a book like wind up girl. Um, Initially, it has this cover, which is interesting. It's got a a giant uh, mastodon on the cover going through Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, it's it's a weird juxtaposition. Like, okay, um, that could be attractive to some readers. But uh, once Trilus started getting all the awards and uh, the attention and the Time magazine review, which was one of the ten books of the year, Mm -hmm. uh, period, um, that should have been repackaged, and it never has been. And that's, I think, uh, the book could have sold more, a lot more.
2: Yeah, well, why don't you tell us about some of the saga books and how you're, what they're about and how you're planning to market them?
0: Um, the first list, uh, it's going to start in spring 2015. And um, we have one uh, called City of Savages by Lee Kelly, it's her uh, first book, and it's set uh, at the the end of uh, World War Three and Manhattan is uh, a demilitarized zone, and and these two teenage girls and their mom are navigating uh, the the various political and uh, awful situations that they're in here with lack of food and lack of housing, and um, also what's really going on in the rest of the world. And it's a juxtaposition of uh, the mother's diary, which one of the daughters finds um, from. 15 years earlier when the war was happening and their present, uh, adventures. And it's, it's really riveting. And so you get this adult voice and the teen voice at the same time. And, uh, it gives you a full picture of what's going on. It's, it's, it reads like a thriller. Um, and then we got Genevieve Valentine's, uh, book persona, which is, it's just like this acerbic, uh, (laughs) thriller that's, I uh licoré uh meets something that came out of ballard um and hmm. uh it, it takes the idea of reality tv gone crazy which we're almost at um and uh just take model un idea but uh, you have these beautiful people who are representing different countries and some of them date each other and that helps their country's fortunes or whatnot and uh and these people are sort of representatives and sort of diplomats at the same time because they are involved, but they're not fully making the decisions. They're, they're just sort of the faces. And at the same time, um, that's what the public sees. And yet at the same time, there's all these behind-the-scenes stuff going on. And it starts off with um, an assassination and attempt and... Uh, it's it's riveting, it's riveting, uh, and it's speaking at so many different levels at the same time, and I think it's that's really great. Um, Genevieve is such a good writer. Yeah, um, and
2: I just want to remind listeners that we interviewed Genevieve Valentine back in episode forty about her novel *Mechanique*, so you should go check that out.
0: Yeah, and, um, I love I love her writing. It's it's so idiosyncratic. Um, and then uh, I had this uh, military sci-fi. Uh, Series called The Dark Side War, which takes place in the dark side of the moon. Um, and um, it's on one level a straightforward military sci fi, but it's it's playing around with your assumptions of what that would be um, at the same time. And so um, it's a little subversive. So you can read it at one level or read it at another. And I love it because of that. Um, and that also, one, I, and that one's, uh Zachary Brown, it's a new, new voice as well. And uh, then lastly, uh, Ken Liu. Um, his debut novel. It's an epic fantasy, and it's going to be called uh, A Tempest of Gold. And uh, yeah,
3: actually, you can read a, a story that takes place in that uh, yes. in that world uh, in Lightspeed in the current issue, in the February issue, um, and it'll be up online for free by the time uh, this podcast airs.
0: That's right. That's right. And it's you know, it's uh, so this, this this takes place in this secondary world that's uh, Ken made up, and it actually started off with a map idea. Um, not not. The similar from Le Guin and Ersi, which I think is kind of cool. And, uh, he's incorporating on one level, uh, some of the classics of uh, Chinese literature that he grew up with, um, uh, Journey to the West and the Three Kingdoms, um, which, uh, if you've seen Hero or, uh, Red Cliff, uh, those movies, um, you'll be familiar with that storyline, um, uh, or even the Dynasty Warriors video game. <laughs> hmm. But he's taken that and then uh, exploded it, and so it's not just uh, kind of this or that's China, it's it's mix of Caucasians and whatnot, and all uh, Western influences at the same time with the the Eastern, and he's retelling these stories kind of in a Western bent, Um, and it's it's epic in the true sense of the word, and I love it, Um, and uh, you know Ken's such a good writer, I think Um, he's been nominated and won almost everything (laughs) a couple of times, almost, and. So it's it's very exciting to have his first book uh, uh, on our first list.
2: Yeah, when, when you started talking about Ken, I was about to say to John, you've published him, haven't you? But then it occurred to me, like, everyone's published him.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, Ken, you know, I came across because of uh, Diverse Energies. Um, mm-hmm. I had read something of his, but it I didn't really click on me. And then Toby's like, oh, what about this Ken Liu guy? I bet he's going to start exploding, dude. You should, mm-hmm. We shouldn't buy mm-hmm. him. All right. And then we got to know each other. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's it's great. And even in the summer of 15, we're doing Steena Leck's first uh, fantasy novel. Um, it's going to be called Cold Iron. And that's somewhere between uh, Moorcock's Coram novels meets uh, Stephen Erickson's books. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's Ken Liu's short story collection, Paper Menagerie, and uh, other stories. And then uh, another thing that we're still working on the title of, so I won't say it, but it's kind of like Lev Grossman's Magicians Meets the Chocolate War. Um, and I think it's great. And that's also subversive in, in different ways. And, and I love playing around with that. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, see, so so John, when Joe uh, started this new imprint at Simon & Schuster, suddenly you had no agent, right? Why don't you, what was that like?
3: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh I think Joe was a little worried, like talking to all of his different clients that we would be mad at them or something, and like when he told me, I was just like, Oh my God, that's awesome, that's amazing and 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 i mean even even from a selfish point of view, I was like, that's still amazing because I'm gonna sell you so many anthologies over the years, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, it's sad obviously not to work hand in hand with them anymore, but I mean, we'll be working together in some different contexts, and um, and you know, we're still gonna be friends and everything, so it's cool. Um, I was really excited for him and, and like, like, I mean, I knew it was like he's perfect for that. Like, you know, he's saying it's a, his dream job. It's like, oh yeah. I mean, he was a great, he was great as an agent, but like, this is, this is like where he belongs, I feel. So, um, so I'm really happy for him. But so, you know, I started, I had to go find a new agent and, um, I ended up with, uh, Seth Fishman and, uh, and that's been going really well so far. I mean, you know, obviously he sold Best American for me and, uh, actually it, the timing of it actually was perfect for for all of this to happen because um you know like joe said we tried to sell the best american thing uh, a couple of years ago and um and then so when i signed with Seth, uh we were just talking about different projects and stuff and it's like i i don't have a, like a, i don't have a lot of projects that i tried to sell and didn't but that was the one that was like that was the big one that i was like oh my god i'm so like this it's it's like my white whale sort of thing you know where it's like it was the best proposal i'd ever written i felt and yet uh, and yet i hadn't been able to sell it and so it was like the and, and of course obviously it was very important to me um, and so, so I was just sort of saying that mentioned that in passing, I didn't really think that, you know, we'd be able to sell it now, but, um, he's like, well, let me try it again. Let me give it another try, you know? And so, and yeah, so then, then it happened. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, before I signed with Seth, I, uh, you know, did a bunch of research and, and talked to a couple of different agents and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, that was, that was kind of stressful that part. So I, I didn't, I didn't love that part, uh, you know, ad- ad- auditioning, uh, everyone, um, it's kind of like dating only, um, a lot less fun. So,
2: yeah, well, it's almost it's almost more like marriage, isn't it? Because you're <laughs> you're sort of well, going to be stuck with this person for.
3: Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, having the actual agents like marriage. Yeah. But I mean, when you're auditioning them, when you're trying to figure out who to sign with, it's like it's like dating, you know, and it's uh, and that's what makes it scary, you know, because it's like because it, it's almost like uh not only is it like dating, but then you're going to get married after one or two dates. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're not going to really get to know them hardly at all. Uh, and so you have to, it's, 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 it's a big commitment. Yeah. Because, um, you know, when you have an agent and then you, you set, you, you go your separate ways, that agent still controls the interests of the books that he sold for you, you know? So, um, so for instance, like Joe was with the Barry Goldblatt agency. And so, um, uh, so Barry Goldblatt still controls the interests of a bunch of the books that I've sold. And, and so my previous agent, uh, uh, Jenny Rappaport, uh, she controls the interests of some of the books, um, you know, that I'd sold. And so it's like, it's very important that whenever you leave an agent, you end up on good terms and, um, you know, uh, it's, it's very complicated. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot like a marriage and, you know, like including like, like what a custody battle over your children, in this case being your books.
2: I mean, so Joe, do you have any advice for people who are listening who maybe want to get an agent, uh, things they should keep in mind when they're like quote unquote dating different agents?
0: Um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about writing that, that perfect query letter, and most of the agents I know and how I treated myself, really, there are all these rules and they're not there. <laughs> Here are your basic rules. Write the agent's name correctly. Uh, put their name down, A, write, and spell it correctly. And, and, uh, really, it's about the writing. It's about the writing. Don't worry about the elevator pitch. Almost no one's good at that. Almost no one, you know, so don't worry about it. We all know that too. I mean, most of us can't write that stuff. Um, so, we scan it, we go like, okay, it's just the kind of thing I like, all right, we're not really critiquing it, and then we go down to the writing, and then we read your sample, and if we like that, then we pop back up and go through it critically, like, okay, mm. and then we contact you, and then you want to read the whole thing or not. And and so, I think there's a lot of uh, anxiety about that first step. Um, and then beyond that, really, um, you know, there's, there's uh, look for an agent who does the kind of thing that you want them to represent, but not necessarily the same thing. You know, if you're if you're writing a book that's this, uh, in the same milieu or uh, subgenre that uh, author Y is writing, then uh, why would they want you if they have author Y, you know? Um, and so you have to think about that kind of thing. Okay,
2: but I mean, say you were talking to someone who doesn't know anything about publishing at all, and they have no idea what the, what the first step is in finding an agent. How do they just find who are the good agents are and avoid scam artists and stuff like that? Uh,
0: well, you never pay for anything, A, uh, if anyone ever reaches out to you on that. Um, that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, if uh, there's Publishers Marketplace, which has a listing um, of most, but not all agents, um, there's a certain fee to pay for that, uh, access to that. Um, and then um, there are other websites. I forget right now if it's Query Tracker uh, is one of them. And then there's another one on the children's side that does a listing of f- for free Uh of who you could uh, meet up with, um, who represents whom, and whatnot. Uh, different organizations like SIT, the Science Fiction Writers of America. Um, if you become a member, if you qualify to become a member, they have a directory as well. Um, so there are places if you if you look up who represents whom um, that you can find a resource. Let's start looking.
3: Yeah, I think SFWA has some resources that are also available just to uh, non-members as well, but. Um but I mean, I think uh what I would say is, uh I mean, one thing you can do to just find people is, uh you know, you can look on the acknowledgments pages of books and whatnot, like books that you that you really liked or authors you really like. You, you know, you can find out who their agent is usually by looking at the acknowledgments page because every author thanks their agent, you know, and, and if they um, don't,
2: that's probably a sign you don't <laughs> want that. agent. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't
3: want that agent if they didn't bother to thank them. Um, but so so, I mean, that's one way. But um I mean, as far as like finding out the right one for you, like, I think. There's no one way to do it. I mean, there's lots of different types of agents. Like a lot of people, they're going to need like a really nurturing, uh, person who's going to really help them all. Like somebody like Joe, who's like, you know, you're, Joe is very nurturing as an agent. And, and, you know, like he was saying before, he, he did a lot of work editing, um, on, on that end before it actually gets to the editor's desk at a publishing house. Um, whereas, um, other agents are more, they're much more focused on the business side of things. Like they're more, they're like their, their focus is more on the salesmanship part. And so like, you know, depending on what type of person you are, you know, that kind of thing might determine how well you're going to work with that person. Like, you know, sometimes you need somebody who, who's going to be really firm with you and, and not, and not take any of your shit, you know, and, uh, and, you know, make sure you stay on your deadlines and, and, you know, um and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's all kinds of, all kinds of agents. And, and yeah, I mean, it's really hard to tell what those, what, what kind of people they are until you actually start querying them. So, I mean, that's one of the unfortunate things. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty tough to, to figure out, um Whatever one's like. I mean, if you don't know who any of them are.
2: All right. So, John, then your other big project that I want to make sure that we mention is the Apocalypse Triptych that you're co editing with Hugh Howey. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, the Apocalypse Triptych is
3: a series of three anthologies, um, as the name implies. And so, uh, the first one's called The End is Nigh. The second one is The End is Now. And then the third one is The End Has Come. And so, it's a triptych because the three books are going to uh, focus on three different facets of the apocalypse. So, the end is nigh is going to be um what i call the pre-apocalypse so it's it's about the events leading up to the world's destruction um the end is now is during the apocalypse so it's chronicling the events uh, of the world ending as it happens and then the end is now or as the end, the end has come um is post-apocalyptic which you know the traditional idea is after the apocalypse has happened um whether it's right afterward or after we've already started rebuilding that kind of thing and so um i initially pitched the idea to hugh howie um after we met at worldcon and uh you know like he liked he really liked wastelands i really liked wool and uh i just threw up the idea of, of you know hey how about we do an anthology together because i figured well i'd like to do another uh apocalyptic anthology and you know that's right in his wheelhouse so maybe that's something we could do together and we could do it like as a self-published thing and you know because i'm interested in experimenting and that kind of stuff and uh so he was totally into it and then um the idea for the triptych came about because I was sort of casting around for ideas for the title for what became the apocalypse triptych. And initially it was just going to be the one book. But then, um, so I, but I came across the, the phrase, the end is nigh. And I was like, I was like, Oh, you know, that's a really good phrase. You know, it's like the, it's like what, what doomsday prophets, uh, always shout. And, you know, they're wearing their sandwich boards that say the end is nigh and all that kind of stuff. And I really liked the phrase, but I was like, well, you can't call a, a post apocalyptic anthology the end is nigh because hmm. the end, the end has already happened, you know? So um, but then I, I kept thinking about it. And and so and, and then, you know, I didn't want to give up on the idea of doing a post-apocalyptic anthology because of all the three facets, that's actually where my heart lies in the apocalypse. But then then it hit me to do what if we did, you know, the series of three different anthologies and focusing each on those different facets. And so um, so I pitched it to Hugh and he was totally into it. And uh, so that's how I was born.
2: I mean, doing this with Hugh Howey, if people don't know, is a gigantic superstar in self-publishing. Uh, could you just talk about what it's like working with him?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's funny, like, whenever you go to a, a co-edited anthology with somebody, especially when it's somebody who's like a best-selling author, you don't necessarily know, like, what sort of level of involvement are they going to want to have, you know? Um, and, you know, like, I, I co-edited a book with Daniel H. Wilson, and I wasn't sure um, when I started to do that either, but, like, he was a full partner, you know, He we were equal co-editors, like, you know, he really got in there and did everything. And Hugh Howey was doing the same thing. Um, and I mean, if anything, he's going above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, like, um, you know, just doing all sorts of things. Like, I can't even imagine how does he have time to do any of this stuff, you know? And, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's been great. And, uh, and you know, just the fact that, like you say, he's, he is the superstar in self publishing because of that, he has all of these connections and he has all of this access to, um, to stuff that regular self published authors don't necessarily have. Um, so like, for instance, you know, he can talk to Amazon. You know, he can just like be like, oh, I'm going to ask my contacts at Amazon what to do about this. And like, and they'll sort it out. You know, um, when they heard about it, the people at Amazon um, who run like Kindle Direct Publishing or Create Space, you know, which is the two of the self-publishing tools, you know, they were like they were all on board. They want to help, you know. So, like, for instance, we have a pre-order page that's actually uh, up right now, um, although actually by the time this airs, uh, the book will actually be on sale. But, you know, we uh we were able to have a pre-order page whereas most of the time if you go through Kindle direct publishing you you can't actually have pre-orders so that's been pretty great and um you know of course uh i'm very optimistic about what the books might do largely because like each volume is going to have an original story by Hugh set in the universe of wolf which is like his big best-selling series and so um i think for that alone i mean you know even if we just get you know Hughes fans check it out i mean obviously it'd be hugely successful but um yeah, so I mean it's it's pretty exciting and we got a stellar like such a great table of contents too for the first one right. like I mean we got the first uh new story by Paolo Bacigalupi in like 5 years so that's super exciting um and uh and just like a just really 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 great lineup you know Nancy Kress, uh Charlie Jane Anders um you know Will MacIntosh uh you know just all kinds of awesome people and uh you know if you go to the the website which I mentioned earlier um or did I mention it it's slash apocalypse triptych but um you can see the whole table of contents, you can see the covers of all three volumes, uh, you can find the pre-order links, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's been super exciting, and, and just, like, creatively, I kind of feel like this might be the best book I've ever done, Um which, obviously, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, choose your favorite child or anything, but I mean, it it was so much fun, like editing this thing. It's like, just one story after another was just like blowing me away. And that, I mean, and while I always, I always really like the stories I ended up publishing. I mean, it's like this one. It was just like, God, I can't believe, like, like, like. Well, this was my favorite story. It's like, oh no, now this one came in. Now this one's my favorite. It's it's kind of crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Joe, when when John talks about you know when he's so successful with his Kickstarter and with the self publishing stuff, as someone who's working for a traditional publisher, uh, just how do you feel about that? Do you, what do you? What impact do you think this sort of thing is going to have on agents and editors uh, who who work in the traditional publishing mode?
0: Oh, I You know, I think it all works together. You know, I think uh, different projects uh, lend themselves to uh, different means, you know, and so I think uh, the Kickstarter and the magazine issues is, is perfect because uh, you're getting attention and funds in a way that you wouldn't be able to normally, right? And so that's perfect for this kind of thing. And sometimes short story collections work really well, you know, or... Uh, Hugh just hit, hit right at the right moment at the zeitgeist of that kind of thing, uh, in literature being very popular. And so it was a good moment and it's a good book. And so it, it, it built on itself. Um, but you know, I don't believe in the adversarial relationship. I don't believe in the adversarial relationship in, in business at all. Uh, I didn't believe in it as a buyer. I don't believe in it now as an editor. Um, nor did I as an agent. Um, so uh, I don't I don't look at it that way. I look at it, it's like, well, that's interesting, you know. And then you look at, okay, like, well, what what is this going to do? What does this mean, you know? And so if this segment is uh, uh, really focused on this kind of thing, and then you look at the bestsellers, um, the Kindle lists, and whatnot, and you can see, all right, well, this kind of thing is trending, and I think that's interesting. And some authors then have print deals as well, and I think there's a way of working hand in hand.
2: All right, cool. So then the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was just that. You've actually been listening to this podcast since I think the first episode, since really close to the beginning anyway. Yeah. So I don't know how many people actually, I mean, I know people have gone back and listened to a lot of the episodes, but I don't know how many, I don't know that many people who started at the beginning and are still listening and, you know, email us and give us their reactions to the conversations and stuff. So I just really want to thank you, Joe, for being such a, uh, a loyal listener for all over all these years.
0: I love it. And, you know, you guys have gotten the, the, the who's who, as Matt was saying in the last episode, the who's, who's who of everyone. I mean, uh, aside from a couple of notable exceptions, uh, you know, uh, and you've both, uh, added so much to the conversation of fantasy and science fiction literature. You know, I think it's great. And also, uh, you know, I love, I, I think back to certain, uh, interviews and, uh, you know, like the Margaret Atwood one. <laughs> I, I love that one. You know, it's even recently she was still skirting around like, oh, it's not science fiction, it's crime crime fiction, whatever she's calling it, uh you know, it's like, oh, let's get over yourself. <laughs> but um no, I, I thank you.
2: Hmm. Yeah, well maybe now with these best American science fiction and fantasy and uh Simon and Schuster having their own science fiction imprint, it'll uh yeah, Margaret Atwood will finally feel like <laughs> science fiction is respectable enough to apply to her own work.
0: Well, you know what she is. I remember seeing her, uh, not to go too far off tangent here, but uh, if you will. Um, yeah, I remember seeing her at the 92nd Street Y um, interviewing William Gibson. And I went there for Bill Gibson because you know, I was born in 1970, so neuromancer was right when I was an older teen. You know, <laughs> when it was that moment. Um, so I saw there for Bill, for Bill Gibson and there they were on stage and I wasn't sure it was, I knew she was kind of like skirting around. It's not science fiction. I don't write that sort of. And there she was talking about the sprawl and all the stuff. And she was definitely down with the lingo. And yeah, it was, it was all bill specific, but then she got into like the whole cyberpunk stuff. And, uh, she was a fan. She's a reader, you know, and you can tell she had joy speaking about it. That, that totally changed my opinion of her. So I think she's stuck in semantics. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's not really a worthwhile argument. And I know what she's saying, what she said with you, you know, like, well, this is could happen if that can't. Um, I think it's all part of the same conversation, the same literature. Hmm. All
2: right, cool. So John, any, uh, any final thoughts, any other projects you have coming up? You want to mention anything like that?
3: Oh uh, yeah actually I mean I have a couple of other things coming out this year as well um you know I have a, in April I have Robot Uprisings which I co-edited with Daniel H Wilson um that's coming out from Vintage and as the title implies it's about robots uprising um and <laughs> go, uh, cool. so so that one's pretty exciting and uh, it, it's going to get a good big marketing push from Vintage and in, in in bookstores and whatnot so I'm I'm excited to see where that's going to go and that's going to you know potentially reach new audiences for me. Um you know, and then in May, I have Dead Man's Hand, uh, which is a weird Western anthology coming out from Titan. Um, and uh, so that comes out in May. And then in July, I'm going to be publishing the anthology I kickstarted last year, uh, Help Fund My Robot Army and other crowd, other improbable crowdfunding projects. Um, so that's going to come out in July. Uh, and that's the one where it's uh, all the stories are told in the in the form of a Kickstarter pitch, a fictional Kickstarter pitch. Um and, uh, so, so those are all coming out this year. Um, and then of course, you know, as I mentioned, the the apocalypse triptych, uh, volume one comes out March 1st and yeah, that's pretty much it. And then otherwise I'll just be working on best American science fiction and fantasy all year. And, uh, the first <laughs> volume of that will come out in October,
2: 2015. Mm. Are you in touch with Daniel at all? What's, what's going on with the robo apocalypse movie?
3: Uh yeah, I mean I don't know, there's not a lot of uh progress on that, I guess. Um I know I just did talk to Daniel the other day, um, because we're working on another anthology that uh we have um an offer on. And so we're waiting to hear back from um, you know, negotiations of that. So hopefully we'll be able to announce that soon. Um and I know he's been working on some other stuff as well um that I can't actually talk about. It's all secret stuff, but um it's actually very cool and uh I'll tell you about it later,
0: Dave, if you want. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think those, those two anthologies are a lot of fun. And obviously I was involved in them to some degree, but you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, John, you do a lot of good work and, uh, I'm really glad you came with the recognition and, you know, that best American thing is, is going to be, I think, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man.
2: All right. Cool. So on that happy note, I think we should, uh, group I yeah, We should, yeah. Ra- <laughs> I think we should wrap this up. So, uh, Joe, thanks so much for stopping by. Oh, thank you. And John, it's so good to have you back. You should uh, join us again sometime.
3: <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me back. It's, uh, it's like, like old times.
2: <laughs> and that was our show. So big thanks to John Joseph Adams and Joe Monty for appearing as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Michio Kaku for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Norwegian Warrior in the US, Repo Man X in Ireland, Droopy87 in Sweden, Kim009 in Mexico, and 232 47 fruihvu in Brazil. Norwegian Warrior writes, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a witty, fun, and intelligent podcast. Before I heard this podcast, I thought I was alone in the world. Highly recommended for anybody who loves reading and writing. Also a huge, huge thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Wes Weathersby, crowdfunder number 64, Jason Lind, crowdfunder number 19, george tricotte crowdfunder number 67 ruby Gallagher, crowdfunder number 68 and estelle tidy crowdfunder number 15 so thanks guys we really appreciate it all right so that was our show so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time
3: the geek's guide to the galaxy is a production of wired.com
0: for more information about the show visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarcurtley.com Music and voiceover
1: produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program,
0: tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.
2: Thank you for listening.